just wouldn't raise money without talking to a lawyer. I wouldn't sign a term sheet. I wouldn't set up a business without understanding stock ownership and IP ownership fully. These are not long, complex discussions. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the Northern California coast. The sun is shining today, Bulent. Hooray for you, Shelley. <laughs> I think you and I are going to really enjoy this particular episode because we're both meeting somebody that we both know. That's right. And her name is Tina Baker. She is a lawyer. And also a musician. She's a singer as well. But we're going to talk to her about her experiences both in the US and also in the UK around legal services for the startup ecosystem. And I first met Tina probably about eight or nine years ago in London. And I was so impressed that she ended up doing some work for me in my startup business. Uh, But now she's back in the US. I think she lives in Florida and uh, But of course, you know her very well as well, don't you, Shelley? Yeah, actually, I met Tina in London also, and uh, she very kindly, on behalf of her law firm, hosted a number of investor events that we held. And the thing that impressed me about that whole situation was so much positive feedback I got from different entrepreneurs who'd worked with Tina. So she really is someone who understands the startup space and has a lot of empathy for founders. So I think this will be a fun interview from the standpoint of the kinds of advice that she is going to offer people. And I'm delighted to say that Tina Baker now joins us all the way from Fort Lauderdale in Florida over there in the U.S. Tina, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you, Blunt. Nice to be here. Hi, Shelley. Hey, nice to see you, Tina. How's the weather in Florida? It's cold. Oh. (laughs) Well, Tina, uh, we really appreciate your time. And uh, Shelley and I are so looking forward to this conversation with you. We know that you work for Withers Tech uh, out there in the U.S. And I know that you spent some time in London as well, because that's where you and I first met many, many years ago. So uh, why don't you share with the audience what you're doing today? Tell us about your company and your role within the company. So I I was working, as you said, I worked in London for 20 years, and I was working mainly in tech and venture capital. And in 2012, I started my own firm with James Shaw, and we called it Jack Shaw Baker, which is when I worked with you you and your company, Belent, and when I met Shelley. That's right. And in 2018, we merged into Withers Worldwide, which is a global law firm, and our team became known as Withers Tech. And at that point, we were just in London, but now we've got people in the U.S. on both coasts. We've got a thriving practice in Milan, in Switzerland, and in, the, and in Asia. So we've got Tokyo, we've got Hong Kong, we've got Singapore. It's really... The tech practice is thriving. So I'm doing mainly uh, European investors investing in U.S. businesses. I am helping some U.S. startups, but more on the investor side at the moment. But, you know, that changes. So throughout my career, I've done both. And I zigzag back and forth. And on any given day, I was doing a multiple number of any of them. So, Tina, you're providing legal services, a whole 
roster of legal services, right? Yes. And so we pretty much do everything a startup will need in terms of the support for setup, both in the UK and the US and in the various countries I mentioned, working on funding, working on equity or debt, intellectual property protection, data privacy, like all that kind of stuff, T's and C's for websites. Um, We've got employment, we have tax, we have real estate, we have everything. And so we can help startups and stay with them, hopefully, through to exit. We have a lot of M&A lawyers as well. I know you as somebody who is providing legal services to startups. What did they have to look for in legal services? You just sort of itemized topics, but what do they need? You know, I'm, first I'm going to give you my spiel on what, what I tell people about what they should think about when choosing a lawyer, because this is interesting. But to me, there's three things. So the first one is, does this person have the expertise I need? Because a lot of times you, you, someone will come to you and they had their cousin do this, the setup because the cousin did it for free and they were a divorce lawyer and they totally screwed it up. That person clearly does not have the expertise. So I would be eh, to that, okay? You knock that person out of the box with the first question. <laughs> the second question is, do I like this person? Can I see myself speaking to them a lot? Do I trust what they're saying to me? Do they seem to know what they're talking? You know, all this just more of a chemistry personal thing. So once you've checked the boxes on those, the third should be how much is this going to cost? Now, if you have two lawyers that you're considering or two law firms, and they've both, you've checked boxes one and two for both of them, then you should pick based on three. Yeah. Be careful though, I always say, because there's a lot of hidden costs sometimes. And so you have to do your homework and talk to people who've worked with these law firms before to see, well, okay, so they're saying they're not going to charge me anything now, which you know I always worry about. But then you come to the Series A and they charge you 100 grand. So and I've heard about this happening a lot. Free goes to the bottom of the pile, by the way. So there's issues with that. So to me, that's what's the most important. Unfortunately, most startups go, they they look at number three first. Of course. Well, because they don't have money to throw around at that point in time. So for a startup, let's say they've gone through one and two uh, and they have a certain amount of money to spend on legal issues. Where do you have them focus? I know that's a very general question, but what are some of the milestones or deliverables that you say, this is what you absolutely must have in order? The first thing that I do, and this is really interesting, is you you see a lot of startups will just form a company online and they don't think much about the ramifications of it. And it's relatively easy to do that, but they often get it wrong. Worse in the UK than in the US because you have to make public filings. So and, you know, a lot of times they'll go to an accountant, ask them to do it, but they won't do the allocations right. And the differences between the U.S. and the U.K. are staggering because in the U.K. you have to file everything. So you have to say who's acquiring the shares, how much are they acquiring. You have to do filings if someone owns a, over a certain percentage, if they're seen to be controlling the company. Uh, you have to put names, addresses, all this stuff. In the U.S., I, when I first started working in the U.K., somebody called me up and said, um, okay, uh, you're a UK, U.S. lawyer, right? I said, yeah. They said, okay, uh, I want to know all the shareholders and directors of, of this Delaware company. I said, okay, so are you? do you want to hire a private detective? I said, what are you talking about? I said, that's private information. Like, we can't get that information. <laughs> like, you have to ask the company to give you the information, and they may tell you to buzz off. 
So, yeah, I mean, there are some changes proposed to that now about controlling business, people who are controlling businesses, because there's been some obviously issues with lack of transparency here in the U.S. So, yeah, so there are a lot of differences here. So, so it, it's easier to start a company here, but it's more expensive, actually. It's funny. It's cheaper to form a company in the UK, but it's more complicated. <laughs> um, it's less complicated, but more expensive in the US. But the one thing that I see that people get wrong is that share allocations amongst founders and vesting. We call it reverse vesting. What tends to happen when you, when you form a startup, one, two, three, four founders, whatever, We'll decide, okay, we're going to split the shares in this company. Let's say there's three founders, three ways. And they they do a million shares and they do three, 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 three each, right? And so they do nothing else for a while and they start building their platform or doing whatever they're doing. And then one of the founders decides this isn't for them and they walk away owning a third of the business. Then you leave the other founder or founders scrambling around because they've now got to dilute themselves in order to bring in someone if they need to replace that person. In all cases, not you may not need to replace that person, but then you end up with someone owning a huge chunk who has no stake in the business, and that is bad. I mean, everyone thinks, oh, this is an investor thing, and it is and it isn't. It's an investor thing in the sense that no one wants to give you money if you could just walk away tomorrow and keep your shares. They can't force you to continue working for the company. There's no such thing as servitude anymore. <laughs> so the only way they can make you do it make you stay is by penalizing your upside in the business if you walk away. That's why this is so standard. It's almost in almost every company I've ever worked for with or seen um, as an investor council, because not only does it protect you from your co-founders, but it also protects the business because if someone doesn't have a stake in making it move forward, it's wasted. So this has to do with the original structuring of the company is what you're saying. Correct. And so, so for instance, I have a friend and I'm working with them now. They, they didn't have a lot of cash. So we made a deal on how we're going to go forward. They are paying their services, but they're just not paying for them right now. So this is worth it to explore that, to set it up properly. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen cases where couple of people decided to do something. They had nothing written down. They developed something. One of them said, you know what, I'm not interested, walked away and could stop the company from using this yet. Or, and this is something that people do a lot, which I, they just think, well, I paid for it. I must own it. Wrong. If you hire a third party to create something for you, and you don't have a contract that specifically says it's a work made for hire and they're creating it for XYZ company or you as a person or whoever is paying them, then they can walk away with it and hold you to ransom later when you decide you want to do a funding round and your investors are like, hmm, wait a minute, we have a problem here. It's that concept of protecting the IP. You know, that, that phrase is just thrown around, but what you're articulating is that it actually has to be protected and put in the name of the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's work there to do. Yeah. yeah we're just, and we were even talking about, you know, the URL, a logo and things like that. Someone can claim that they owned it, not the company. So yes. And then you have to rebrand. It, it's silly, right? So these things seem small and it's detail, but it's, it's a really important detail. Getting things wrong on the cap table 
it's not always so easy to fix. We've heard from various people in the legal profession or associated with this concept of housekeeping and how important it is, how big things can go wrong if you don't take care of the housekeeping. Yeah. How about something like term sheets? Are they important? Can you just get a one off the internet and use that easily? Or what would you, what would you say on those? Okay. So this is really interesting. That, and there's huge differences between the U.S. and the U.K. on this side. I've done a lot of deals recently in the U.S., and most investors have their own term sheets. If you've not done a deal before, though, you may not really understand all the nuances. And so there are a bunch of things in there that should be discussed with an expert. Y Combinator, for instance, has a one-page term sheet. Sounds nice. <laughs> well, but it's not because it, it just says customary. Whenever I see customary, I kind of cringe. It, it also has approval of a majority of preferred stock as a preferred majority. The founders, if it's their first round of funding, they may not understand what that means. There, there are some nuances here with drag-alongs. Fortunately, though, the Y Combinator and the Y Combinator docs are fairly founder-friendly, and the differences between the UK and, and rest of Europe and the US are around that in the sense that it's much more founder-friendly in the US. In the UK, it's sort of partially governed by the BVCA. And are you saying that they're not very founder-friendly, though, those docs? They're less founder-friendly than the US docs. The liquidation preferences are the same, so we generally you know, see the same non-participating one-times. And the anti-dilution is usually weighted average, broad-based. But other things like the drag-along is definitely more heated debate in the UK, rights of first refusal on share transfers are sometimes applicable to a lot of shareholders and not just founders, whereas in the US, it's generally just founders. And, the, and they tend to limit all of these rights, preemption on new issues, rights of first refusal, co-sale in the US to major investors. So angels don't get these rights, whereas historically, that's not been the case. In the, in the UK or Europe, and the BVCA docs now allow for that as an option. So you can, obviously, if you want to, limit a lot of the investor rights, to, including information rights, to major investors, but that's not been the case historically. Yeah. And at the term sheet stage, it, it's important to understand what those things mean because it's harder to fight about them later. Well, it's, it's like better put the issue out on the table initially resolve it because anytime uh, you know a problem goes that you then have to solve after the fact it's going to take two or three or four times as much time effort and pain and then and then on the on the reverse side of that i remember um i met this guy he had a series a term sheet he hadn't done any funding before it was an institutional vc and for some reason there was no mention of founder vesting in the term sheet and he'd already signed it Right. So I said, oh, did you discuss founder vesting? Do you have founder vesting? No, there were two founders. No. Did you discuss founder vesting with this VC? No. I said, okay, well, I'm telling you it's going to come in the docs when they draft them. He said, no, it's not. It's not in this term sheet. It's not going to be in the docs. I said, okay, let's make a bet. 
<laughs> if it's in the docks, you take me to dinner. <laughs> Anywhere I want to go. At a really nice restaurant. I said, and if it's not in the docks, I'll take you to dinner anywhere you want to go. So what do you think was in the docks? Founder vesting. My point is, I, I don't know if we would have done anything differently there, but maybe because then he got really angry when it did show up. So Tina, with all this information that you're giving, what are the key learnings for a founder in the UK? And is that advice different for a founder in the US? In other words, how best to avoid some of these issues right from the get-go? What should founders be thinking who are not legally trained in the way that, that, that clearly you are? I don't think it is different unless you're in like Y Combinator already or something like that. Because A, no matter where you are situated, if you have more than one founder, you need to put vesting in place. And you need to talk to someone to help you do that. There are also tax implications and they have to be respected. And also, I would not just go to an accountant. So these friends of mine who I'm working with now, the first conversation I had with them, I said, do not set up an LLC. You know, they actually have their sites on certain VCs. I said, they're not going to invest in an LLC. You're going to have to convert it. So the first thing I would say is listen to your lawyer. And if you are speaking to an accountant on tax advice, you need to talk to someone who knows startup law, not some person who works with high net worth really rich people who have totally different tax issues. Talk to your lawyer, but identify a lawyer that knows the startup ecosystem. Exactly. You know, this is where people get burned working with a law firm that isn't appropriate for a startup, charges a ton of money, and everything goes south. Yeah. And just because they're a well-known firm, well, maybe if you were doing a billion dollar IPO, you'd hire them, but not before then. I can't tell you how many documents I had to chop up and like, you know, put in the garbage disposal <laughs> and start <laughs> over because they used bigger traditional law firms. So Tina, you know, you spent, uh, what is it, nearly 20 years in, in the UK? 20 years in the UK, yes. There's no hint of it in your accent, by the way, uh, but I'm sure you picked up some local slang uh, whilst you're over here in the UK. I've always said I speak two languages, American and English. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I'm intrigued to know what's the cultural differences between the two countries. So, so not so much the legal side, but more around dealing with people. There's more risk aversion in Europe. The, the VC funds seem to have more of a sense of needing to monitor their investments and taking less of a risk. A lot of the U.S. investors are more like cowboys. That's a big difference. Um, I think founders get away with a lot more control over their businesses, too. The way that things work is sort of like, you know, when you get married, who pays for the engagement party, who pays for the wedding? You know, the whole thing with, with startup funding rounds is typically on the first round, the investor council will draft the documents. And then if they're good, which they should be based on templates, then you continue using those throughout the life cycle of the funding rounds. And so the company council takes over, but it doesn't always work that way. So sometimes you, in the US, more often you'll see the company council drafting the first set of documents because, you know, they're Wilson Sonsini or they're Gunderson. Yeah. Then the, um, the investor council is from Europe because that's a lot of what we're doing. So in, in most of the deals I've worked on in the last year and a half, 
We have not drafted the doc, the U.S. docs, the company councils have, but they've all been those firms. If I'm an early stage investor and I'm here in the U.S., am I better off investing in a U.S. company because of the kinds of protections and other things I get? So when I first started doing this work, we, we had convertible notes and they were generally converting at a discount to the next round. There was no such thing as a valuation cap. Valuation caps came in 2007, 8, maybe 9. And so then we started with the number of shares being the greater of the valuation cap or the discount. You know, I think the discount's more fair. And I had another client who said, if you're going to have a valuation cap, you're generally going to convert at that valuation. So you should just do equity now. It's like, why are you bothering? There's only one reason to bother. It's quicker to do. And it, it actually became a lot quicker when safes came up in America. Tina, could you quickly define what safe is, uh, just for the people who don't know? It's the simple agreement for future equity. So basically all it says is, you're giving me $100,000. When we do our next funding round, and there's no thresholds, by the way, it doesn't have to be of a certain amount, but it has to be equity, not another safe. When we do our next equity funding you will convert into shares of a shadow class because you're converting at a different price. That's either typically the safe, the safe can be just a valuation cap, just a discount to the round price or the greater of one of those two or the lower, depending on how you're calculating it. And so you just sign that and that's it. There's a side letter that some institutions will get, which will give them information rights while the safe is outstanding, allow them additional preemption rights on the on the next round. So they convert into it, but they could also buy more. And you might have a couple of other things in there depending, because I've seen big VCs put in a million dollars in a safe. You know, we're talking about like big West Coast VCs, right? But this is these complexities are why you need a lawyer. Yeah. But most <laughs> angels, when they're getting into a company, they're getting in on a safe. And they're totally standardized now, unfortunately. They're Y Combinator forms. People go with them all the time. They're post-money now, so that it's a post-money cap. So they're a little bit more punitive on the founders rather than a pre-money, which they used to be. But no one has really any negotiating over it. It's just, you just, people just sign it. You get it done really quickly. And then when the round converts, you have, as an angel, you have no rights. And you get no rights either because you're not going to be a major investor. So you're not going to have preemption. You're not going to have information. You're not going to have any of the stuff. And people expect that now in the U.S. They just expect it. We have possibly more expectation in the U.K. from people who are angel investing. Um, I don't know if that's changed because I haven't done many angel rounds in the U.K. You know, since before the pandemic. So. But I do know that, you know, because of EIS and SEIS, which for the viewers who don't know, it's a tax advantaged uh, investment scheme, which gives investors in the UK who are tax resident in the UK um, a really good tax break if they invest in, in certain types of startups. So when the safe started, we did advanced subscription, which basically had to convert. And the problem that you faced in the UK with these was they had to convert within 12 months. So the safes go on indefinitely. So it gives the company enough of a runway to decide because they may raise another safe round before they actually do their first equity funding. Nobody except the lawyer is going to know all of this. And the founder trying to run their company 
is being pulled a million different directions and doesn't have time to bone up on this on the internet, <laughs> quite honestly. No, but I've also, I tell founders this, and unfortunately there's no way to advertise it. And for me at this point, I, I don't really want to, but you know, I would say to people, before you sign a term sheet, come and talk to me. I won't charge you. Uh, you could see what it's like to discuss this with me and see if you like me. And I would hope that you would hire me to do the round. But do not sign it without talking to somebody. And, you know, however you can organize that, you should do that. I, I just wouldn't raise money without talking to a lawyer. I wouldn't sign a term sheet. Absolutely. I, I mean, I wouldn't set up a business without understanding the issues about stock ownership and IP ownership fully looking at that as well. These are not long, complex discussions. Could I move the conversation on to uh, some advice you might give to founders who are thinking about setting up a U.S. operation? So let's say there's a there's a U.K. business that's beginning to do quite well in the U.K. They've perhaps raised a, a bit of money to do an expansion to the U.S. What are some of the key mistakes people make that they really ought to avoid? What would you advise them to, to think about? Do not employ people in the U.S. through a U.K. company. <laughs> that's the first thing. <laughs> yep. Do not do that. <laughs> Um, set up a subsidiary. If you're expecting to generate revenue, I would, in the U.S., I would work with an accounting firm who understands the tax implications of international businesses, because you may have to put a services agreement in place and, and structure it so that you maximize your tax benefit from that. And also get an HR consultant. I mean, it's, it's easier to employ people in the U.S. that's there's no statutory rights hardly anywhere for anything. <laughs> but there are issues. And again, work with a law firm that knows how to set up startup documents for employees because you don't want the kinds of contracts that you're going to see from big companies. What about the other sort of side of that question, which is how would you advise an American business coming to the UK? What are the key things to look out for an American founder that wants to expand into Europe and maybe start off with that expansion plans uh, in the UK? Well, it's the same in the sense that you set, set up a subsidiary, don't employ people through your US business. And one thing I would say is a lot of people say, well, we'll just do, we'll employ people as consultants and we won't have to worry about any of this HR stuff. That's wrong. If they really are consultants, okay. But most of the time they're not. And so- if someone's really an employee, you must, as a startup, employ them. Tina, could we uh, take you back to the younger Tina Baker? We're, we're always interested in this program, really, to find out a bit more about you, the person. You know, if you if you go back to when you were, let's say, a teenager or a young adult, what were you thinking at that time? And, and what led you to a, a life in, in, in law and especially, you know, sort of startup world? I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I was a rock and roll kid. The day that I heard the first Led Zeppelin album changed my life. And so I, I went to college uh, in Massachusetts, I went to Hampshire College. But I was also, I was very into politics and stuff. And I was very active. And so Hampshire was a new school, no grades, very political school. And I got a job in New York after law school. And I was working on um, IPOs. Uh, and the firm that I represented, uh, represented Donald Trump. Mm. And also represented Drexel Burnham Lambert, which was Mike Milken, who's went to prison. And I did a lot of IPO deals for him. That was my first two years. And then um, I ended up getting a record deal. And uh, I spent close to 10 years doing music full time. 
Uh, I went back to working at a law firm in New York doing IPO work. I was working mainly with biotech companies. This was the early 90s. Uh, the first tech company I did was based in Sunnyvale that had a switching technology and nobody knew what to do with it. <laughs> so I worked there for a while. And while I was doing that, I trained as an opera singer. Mm -hmm. The reason I moved to the UK was because of the opera stuff. I was going to work with this producer, but I got a job for a US law firm and I was working with tech companies who were doing stuff in the US. And then it all snowballed from there. I met Index Ventures, I met Mangrove, Capital Partners, Highland, Summit. Like I just started meeting all these people and then I started working with them and it all just snowballed from there. But I, I always kept doing music. Fantastic. Well, hopefully you'll, you'll be touring in London as well. And if you do, please let us know. We'll love to, we'll love to come along. Um, so just to wrap up, Tina, can, can you just have a, a little peek into the future and just give us your view as to what the next sort of one or two years, maybe three years holds for the world of um, startup businesses and founders and especially with this whole thing around AI and technology. One of the things we are seeing is that we're having a lot of recaps and a lot of down rounds. And VCC, you know, everyone's saying people aren't investing, they aren't investing. Well, it's not that they're not investing. They're spending a lot of time deciding which companies they're going to prop up and try to keep afloat. And that's taking money and energy. New investment might be somewhat down. But that's not indicative of less money being there. Yeah. That's probably going to continue for a year, maybe. I don't know how much longer, maybe longer. I don't know. I've always said one of the reasons why I went into VC law is because I feel at home here because it's the same business model as the music business, right? You're trying to produce the next big hit, whatever that hit is, whether it's curing cancer or, you know, building the better mousetrap to buy shoes on the internet or, you know, whatever. But you're building this hit and, Investors put up money into a lot of companies and they know most of them aren't going to succeed. They throw them at the wall, they see which ones stick, and then they go after that one. And that's the same thing in the music business. So, Tina, it's been a, it's been a fascinating conversation. Really, really enjoyed seeing you again. And uh, thank you for revealing so much great information. If people are listening to this and are really inspired by what you've said, Tina, what's the best way for people to find you and contact you? Okay, well, I'm on the Withers website. It's withersworldwide.com. And if people want to, to listen to your dulcet tones and hear your music, what's the best way to do that? Well, I have a website which has links to all the streaming platforms so that you don't have to just choose one. And it's called tinabmusic.com. Wonderful. Well, look, I mean, I shall be seeking out that and listen to more of your music. Um, and uh, Tina, you know, thanks very much for, for your time today. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been great, Tina. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fun. Well, Shelley, that was an action-packed uh, interview with Tina, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, what struck you most out of that conversation? What struck me most? There were so many things that struck me. But let me start with something I thought was very important and was a thread that went through the entire conversation. And it was about the importance of getting good legal advice. And, you know, it's one of those things that startup founders frequently feel like, oh, this is going to be expensive, this is time-consuming, this is added admin. And yet Tina talked very eloquently about the importance of getting good advice at the right points in time. But what I loved also 
she said, you know, there were kind of three things about when you're looking to find a lawyer with whom you can work. She said, first of all, talk to the lawyer, make sure you can get along, make sure you feel like you are on the same page. You can talk about things and communicate. The second thing was, you know, make sure that you are engaging a lawyer who knows the business you're in. Don't hire a lawyer who's a real expert in criminal law if you're trying to build a startup because there's there's totally a mismatch. But really find a lawyer who understands startups. And then the last one was really about negotiating the cost because good lawyers who operate in the startup field do understand that startups are often strapped for cash. So she talked about, you know, there are different ways to compensate for legal help. There's equity, there's payments over time, et cetera. So I actually thought that was a really good set of points that she brought up. And then, of course, you know, she dove into multiple different, very technical aspects that, uh, you know, term sheet, for example, that I know you've been through. Yeah, the, the two key points that I took away the first one being around founder vesting. So it's very easy if you've got a co-founder, let's say there's two people in total, you split it 50-50 or three people, you split it a third, a third, a third. That's usually a mistake because if you give away half your company on day one, who knows what might happen? That person may end up leaving after six months and <laughs> taking the half the company with them. Uh, and, and what can you do about it? So she was very clear that really it is important to have some sort of vesting plan for founders so that founders are committed to the business. The second point was really around term sheets. And I know from my own experience that fundraising is incredibly stressful. It takes time far longer than you would want. Cash is running out and you're feeling the pressure as the money runs out, then you're, you're desperate to get a term sheet and you're desperate to get cash uh, in the bank from the, from the investor. And so when a term sheet arrives, there's a, there's a relief point almost. You're feeling relieved that finally you've made some progress. And so it's very easy to overlook the terms of that term sheet and just sign it so that you can move on to due diligence so that the, the cash arrives quicker, basically, so you can start paying your bills. And really, Tina was very clear that You need to speak to a lawyer because if you just sign it with just a cursory understanding of the terms, you could tie yourself up in knots. And it could end up being a false economy, both in terms of the effort, the timing of it, and maybe legal fees as well, you know, to unravel some of the things that you just signed away. The devil's in the details, isn't it? Absolutely. But then what I love, Belend, about Tina, as well as her expertise, is this other side of her, the the artistic, (laughs) creative uh, singer that she is. She's fabulous. She is a force of nature in terms of her musical passion and energy. And uh, I love the bit when she said that, Uh, She listened to the first Led Zeppelin album and it just changed her life, you know. I've actually had the pleasure of seeing her band and her singing up front and she's a very talented lady, isn't she? Pretty impressive. Next time on Startup Sensations. Don't send anybody an email. What people tend to do is to sort of say, this is my product, it's really great, do you want to buy some? And that's all they do. It's a complete and utter waste of time. Get in front of somebody, that's what you need to do. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. 
don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast. Podcast.